0: Let me give you a little bit of context since we are up to chapter 44 of Isaiah. If you read the book of Isaiah for 39 chapters, Isaiah shows that the nation of Israel, God's people, have sinned. They have not lived life as God designed it to be lived. And Isaiah points that out extensively for 39 chapters. And God's people still do not confess their sin, they don't turn back to God, they don't repent. And so God has said that he will raise up the Babylonians, a foreign power, to come in and to conquer God's people. They will ransack Jerusalem. They will carry God's people off into exile in Babylon for six or seven decades. And God is already saying, before that even happens, That he's going to raise up Cyrus the Persian, who in six or seven decades will conquer Babylon and free his people so they can come back amazingly. God mentions Cyrus by name here at the end of Isaiah 44 and the beginning of Isaiah 45, decades before the things God promises actually come to pass. So God will deliver his people. He will forgive their sin. But the question he deals with here in Isaiah 44 is this. What prevents this from happening again? If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know there is a cycle. God's people turn away from him. He sends calamity. He sends hard times. They eventually turn back to him, and they are faithful to him for a while, and then they turn away again. And so this cycle has been going on and on throughout the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 44, God makes a promise To enable his people to walk in his ways. To enable his people to carry out the purpose that he has for them. And so as I read these verses now, beginning in Isaiah 43 and verse 25, I want you to be listening for who the promise is made to, or to be grammatically correct, to whom is the promise made. Also be listening, secondly, for what is the promise And then I'm going to spend the bulk of our time answering the question, what that promise means for us. So be thinking about those things as I read to you God's word, beginning in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Hear now God's word. I, even I, am him who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Your spokesman rebelled against me, so I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple, and I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you, do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name of Israel. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would show us to whom this promise is made, that you would help us to see clearly the promise, and that by your Spirit, using the preaching of the Word, you would show us what this promise means for us. And Father, I ask that you would do all this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, let's answer that first question, to whom is the promise made? And if you look right there in verse 1, you see it's made to Jacob, God's servant, to Israel, God's chosen people. So the promise is initially being made to those who are descended from the patriarchs, from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. And so, first of all, that's who the promise is made to. Now, before we go any further, I want I I to can't, I go ahead and get into, Will said we all need this, this word of hope. And I, even before I go on, I want to I give you a word of hope. Notice what's going on. Don't miss... That Isaiah is showing God's grace so clearly. Think about it. Despite their past sin and rebellion, they haven't even repented yet. God still identifies Israel as his chosen servant. He still plans to use them for the purpose for which they were created. So I just want you to know that is what God is like. That is the nature of the God that we serve. So I want you to know that whatever sins have been in your past, there is grace available for you today. Wherever we are individually or even as a nation, we must acknowledge the reality of our past sins But then we must live in the reality of God's present grace. So this promise is made first to the nation of Israel, to those ethnically Jewish folks who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. But the promise doesn't end there. Look at the end of verse 3. God says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. Your translation may say, on your seed. The Hebrew word is Zerah that is right there. And then he says, and my blessing on your descendants. Now, this is interesting language. Of course, the original audience is thinking those who will return from exile in Babylon six or seven decades from the time that God is, is making these statements. But the New Testament looks at this word offspring, seed, descendants, and applies that to the New Testament church. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's what he says about those who belong to Christ. And that's why he goes on in Galatians 6 and verse 16 to refer to the New Testament church as the Israel of God. People who were Jewish and had accepted Christ, also people who were not Jewish and accepted Christ. So the New Testament tells us that the offspring, that the descendants that God refers to, that even as far as the heirs of the promise includes those of us who accept Christ Jesus as our Lord. Now, this is not just something the New Testament church came up with. God had promised that He would use this group of people descended from Abraham to reach all families of the earth, to reach all nations. That was always God's plan. Genesis 12 and verse 3, when he calls Abram and says he's going to give him a land and he's going to show him a place. And in Genesis 12 and verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all nations will will be blessed. All people on the earth will be blessed through you. Your translation would say all families of the earth, all ethnic groups will be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. That was always God's plan from the beginning. But in the scripture, you don't have to look ahead to Galatians 3 or Galatians 6 or back to Genesis 12 and verse 3 to see this is the case. God mentions it right here in this text with Isaiah. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 44. Look what God says He says, That when he sends his spirit, when the spirit is poured out, one will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. Think about that with me. Ethnically Jewish people would already be called Jacob and would already have the name Israel by nature of their birth. But these people, God refers to in verse 5, call themselves Jacob. They take on the name of Israel. God is saying here that when he pours out his spirit, there will be many who accept Israel's God and include themselves with Israel's people who give themselves to God. And that includes you. That includes me. For Galatians 3 tells us that if we confess Christ, if we belong to Christ Jesus, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs of these exact same promises. We are the Israel of God. So the answer to this first question, to whom is the promise made? It's made to Israel, the nation and its seed and its descendants. The promise is made to all who say, I am the Lord's. To all who submit themselves to the God of Israel, who we know today as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This promise is for us. Now, I started with that first question, to whom is the promise made? Because if the promise is for us, then the second question, what is the promise, is a lot more interesting to us now, right? If this promise is for us, I'm a little more interested. It's not just academic, right? This promise is for us. So let's look. What is the promise You see it there in verses 3 and 4. God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Verse 4, They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. God promises here in Isaiah 44 that he will pour out his spirit on his people and that his people will flourish as a result. Now this was an important question to answer in Isaiah's day. Think about the people who would be hearing this. If they are conquered by a foreign power, Babylon, and they're carried off into exile where they are prisoners of war for six or seven decades, then during that time they would have to wonder, is there going to be a future for our nation? Will we continue to exist as a people? God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3 that he would use his descendants, that he would make his descendants numerous, and that through that group of people, he would reach all nations of the earth. But when your nation is destroyed, when you're carried off into exile, the question has to be asked, are we going to be totally destroyed Will our unfaithfulness to God mean an end to God's faithfulness to us? It's a surprisingly relevant question to us today, isn't it? Not just for the people of God in the 8th century BC, but for us. Because when we've been unfaithful to God, when we experience the consequences of our sin, we often wonder the same thing. Will our unfaithfulness to God mean an end to God's faithfulness to us? And I want you to hear clearly that God, through the prophet Isaiah, over and over and over, emphatically answers that question, No, our unfaithfulness to God will not mean an end to God's faithfulness to his people. Here in Isaiah 44, God again promises to be faithful and to pour out his spirit on his servants. The very spirit of God whose energy and vitality created and formed the world out of nothing. So that what we would think with human eyes was dry and dead or totally destroyed as God describes what will happen to the nation of Israel in chapter 43 and verse 28, that what appears to us to be totally destroyed, God, when he pours out his spirit, will make it bloom in abundance. God promises to come down to us in a way that makes us burst into life. Is that where you are today? I wonder. Are you thirsty? Do you feel dry? Do you feel like you're bursting into life or you're just struggling to survive? Maybe you're tired today. Maybe you're just bored. Maybe you don't really feel much at all. You feel dead inside. You feel numb. I want you to know that our Savior, Jesus calls people who feel that way to come to him for his spirit. He said it in John chapter 7, when he goes to the Feast of the Tabernacles. In John 7, beginning in verse 37, we read that on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said... Streams of living water will flow from within him. And then I love John in verse 39 gives us the explanation, right? By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. <laughs> Thank you for that commentary, John, right? The best commentary on the scripture is always the scripture itself. Jesus called people who were dry and thirsty and dead inside to come to him to believe in him and that he would pour out his spirit in a way that not just fills us up and gives us life but would make us a spring of life overflowing with the life of the spirit that would bring life and health and flourishing to all around us. Jesus says this promise is according to the scripture. He refers to this promise God made to Isaiah, God made through Isaiah, and God kept his promise at Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2 when God poured out his spirit on his people. If you were with us for the series in Acts last fall, you know that we saw happen what Jesus says here in John 7, that those who come to Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. And there's a debate today in the evangelical church as to whether that's something that just happens one time, or if there is a second filling or baptism of the Spirit. And as we looked at the book of Acts, what we saw as a pattern is that God did pour out his Spirit one time at Pentecost. Pentecost. But then those folks who who had the Spirit poured out on them, who believed, who confessed Jesus as Lord, they would go out and do the Lord's work. Then they would get tired. They would get dry. They would run out of gas. They would get weary and burdened like we do. And so they would gather back together under biblical leadership. They would worship. They would fellowship they would teach the word, they would pray together, and the Spirit would come again, and they would be filled with the Spirit as they gathered to do those things. Then they would scatter and go do the Lord's work, and as they ran out of gas, they would gather again, and we saw this pattern of gathering to be filled with the Spirit, and then scattering to do the work of the Lord. And we said it's not really a one-time filling or a second filling, but there's a pattern of gathering and scattering and then coming back together again, and it was really more like the gas tank on our car that you don't just fill it one time or a second time that we're always filling the tank back up and then driving the car and it's the fuel to drive and then we would come back together and fill the tank again and i want you to know god's own promise here in isaiah 44 seems to affirm what we saw in the book of acts look at verse 4 He says they will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. The image of trees by a stream is much more consistent with the gas in the tank being filled over and over again, rather than a one time or a two times being filled. The image here and the pattern we see in Acts shows that the filling with the Holy Spirit should be a continual thing. We should continually drink up the Holy Spirit the way a tree by a stream continually drinks up water. So let me ask you, in your life, you may be surrounded by desert, but if your roots go deep into the flowing stream of the Holy Spirit, you will survive and even thrive when all around you is dry if we draw on life the holy spirit gives we can flourish even in difficult times if you're keeping up with the outline you know i've already shifted we've said to whom the promise is made and what the promise is and i'm beginning to slide into what does the promise mean for us so let's just keep walking down that road what does promise mean for us Let me enumerate four things quickly. First, it means we don't have to be afraid. Look at verse two. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. God made us. God formed us in the womb. That means he's been with us from the very beginning. He knows the intimate details of our life. God says he will help us. And that he will pour out his spirit on us. Now, I don't mean to point out the obvious, but we forget this sometimes. So let me remind us. You do know that God's spirit is God, right? So when God pours out his spirit on us, he's saying that he is with us in a mighty way. It means that we are safe and that we don't have to be afraid. Not not safe in the sense that nothing bad ever happens to us, but safe knowing that even the bad things that happen to us, God uses for our good. And we don't have to be afraid in the sense that the good things that God gives us cannot be taken away from us. It means that God's with us in the sense that The future that he has for us means the best things are yet to come. And when the Holy Spirit assures us of that, then we can have a certain hope in uncertain times. We don't have to be afraid. For some of us, our relationships may be hard right now. We don't have to be afraid. For some of us, our health is declining, but we don't have to be afraid. For some of us, work has been hard. Maybe our boss is planning our dismissal. We get that feeling, but we don't have to be afraid. You see, whatever is making you afraid, the Holy Spirit assures us that even the bad things that happen will be used for our good. The good things that God gives us can never be taken away. And the best things God has for us are yet to come. So we don't have to be afraid. Number two. The promise means that we flourish as the people of God. You heard me getting into that already, that we would flourish. That what was thirsty and dry, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, it then flourishes. That the Holy Spirit transforms what is thirsty and dry. Now think about it. I know I'm more of a literal guy, and sometimes metaphors are harder for me. But think about that. I don't want to press it too far. But if it's thirsty and dry then its deepest need is for water. And God, in the metaphor, satisfies that deepest need. So I believe what he's saying is that when the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, our deepest needs, our deepest longings are satisfied. It at least means this, that our soul's thirst is quenched, and we at least taste enough satisfaction in God to know where to spend the rest of our lives Drinking. Oh, may God give us that kind of a thirst. We often fail to flourish if we're honest, though. The spirit is grieved, the spirit is quenched instead of our thirst being quenched. And I want to think about why we fail to flourish. I think it's really for a couple of big reasons. Some of the big ones on the list are these. First, Many times we're not satisfied with our present circumstances. We think God owes us more. We think we ought to have something different, and it keeps us from flourishing. Or those of us who are even satisfied with our present circumstances, we are often afraid that something bad is going to happen in the future. Think about just those two things with me. How much of your head and your heart are taken up by these two things? Discontent with the present or a fear of the future? It's a huge reason why we fail to flourish as the people of God. And if that is true for you, if that's a struggle, then the Holy Spirit is what we need. Because when Holy Spirit is poured out on us, our dry thirstiness in the present is satisfied. And we don't have to be afraid of the future or to put it another way if the holy spirit satisfies our souls in the present and takes away our fear of the future then then that enables us to have a certain hope even in the midst of uncertain times and we see the truth of that verse that'll be our benediction romans 15 and verse 13 that we overflow with hope by the power of the holy spirit So the promise makes a difference. First, we don't have to be afraid. Second, we flourish. Third, we're devoted to God. We are devoted to God. Remember, that was the whole thing that prompted this discussion. How will this cycle not happen again of turning away from God? Remember, when Isaiah is writing this, he's writing the sinful, disobedient people who were not faithful to God, even though God had been faithful to them. Yet, in verse 5, all of a sudden, when the Spirit is poured out, people start expressing their devotion to God. They begin to walk in His ways. And it shows us that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, that's what happens. There's a new devotion for God. There's a new desire to walk in His ways. If you read Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, then you'll see that's what's new about the new covenant. is that we don't break it like we did the old covenant. That God gives us a heart that desires to walk in his ways. Exodus 36 talks about, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36 talks about the exact same thing, but is explicit about the spirit. Ezekiel says, God will take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And in Ezekiel 36, in verse 27, God says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and carefully keep my laws. So when the Holy Spirit is poured out, he gives us new hearts that are devoted to God, that are broken over our sins so that we're quick to repent and quick to turn back to him. So let me just ask you, is that where you are? Do you have that kind of devotion to God? Are you broken over your sin and quick to repent and to turn back to him? If we're honest, we struggle with being devoted to God. We struggle to walk in his ways and it's an indication that we need the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here today and you don't even desire to walk in God's ways. You don't even want to be devoted to him. You also need the Holy Spirit to come and to give you a new heart and new desires. It's the promised Holy Spirit that changes our hearts and enables us to walk in God's ways. Number four, we multiply as other people are drawn to the people of God right? So we don't have to be afraid. We flourish. We're devoted to God. We multiply as others are drawn to God. In that last verse in chapter 43, God's people are a disgrace and they are scorned. But by the time you get to Isaiah 44 and verse 5, others, other people who are outside the people of God want to join the people of God. That's what it's like when the Spirit is poured out on a people. Many people, he emphasizes, he says, one, says that I belong to the word. another will call on the name of the Lord, still another, he's emphasizing that it's not a handful, but it happens over and over and over again, that as people outside the people of God see what it looks like to live as those whom God has poured out his spirit, they desire to be a part of that. They want some of what those people have. What about us? You know as I've thought about this and prayed about this it's sort of hard to tell if we're multiplying when we're in quarantine isn't it that's that's tough so let me just come a little closer and ask this question do we want to do we want to multiply do we want to see the people around us come to the lord not just to admit that we're right or we have been right all along, but I mean truly longing to see people come to God through the finished work of Christ on the cross that they see making a difference in our lives. I believe if we're honest, we don't really see the people around us this way. For most of us, we see the people around us as obstacles to our contentment, so we avoid them. Or we see them as vehicles for our comfort, so we use them. Rarely are we so free of fear and flourishing in our devotion to God that others find us so content that they want what we have and are drawn to God without us avoiding or using them. Why would others want to have what we have when we're so discontented with our present and so fearful of our future? Until God is enough for us in our present, and until his presence and promises and provision calm our fears about our future, then we will continue to avoid people or use people and we'll never be satisfied with that. And in our dissatisfaction, we will attract no one to the Lord. We need what only the Holy Spirit can give us. Only his work in us enables us to be God's servants and to carry out the purpose that he has for us. So let me close just by answering this question. How can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? How can our church experience an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that frees us from the fear of the future and satisfies us even in present circumstances that that are hard and empowers us to love the people around us in a way that is so authentic they are drawn to Christ Jesus who is being formed in us? How does that happen? Two things. Number one, how can I get the Spirit? Number one, ask for it what Jesus said. Luke chapter 11, very clearly, Jesus talking to his disciples, says in Luke 11 and verse 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those Who ask him? That's number one. Ask him. I can't say it any better than Jesus did, so we'll leave it at that. Ask God to give you the Holy Spirit. Number two, meditate on the word of God. Now that one may not come to you intuitively, but I think it's important. And here's why. Let me just say a word about here's why. I've talked with a lot of folks who say, you know, I've asked God. For his spirit. I've asked God for hope in uncertain times. I've asked God for faith, and nothing happens. I've asked him a million times, and it just nothing has ever happened for me. And so I think it's important that we ask, but then we also meditate on the Word of God. Now, why would I say that? Well, here in Isaiah 44 and verse 4. "...the tree planted by streams of water is a picture of someone who has experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit." But in Psalm 1, who we're going to look at this week, Mark Williams is going to lead that study. So in the Men's Bible Study, you can join us by Zoom this Wednesday, 6.30, Mark Williams on Psalm 1. And you'll see that in Psalm 1, the tree planted by streams of water that brings forth fruit for other people in season is a picture of someone who meditates on the Word of God day and night. Why is the same picture used in Isaiah 44 for someone who has experienced the outpouring of the Spirit, that same picture is used in Psalm 1 for the one who meditates on the Word of God day and night? Maybe, maybe God just likes that metaphor. It's a good one. But I think it's more than that. I think it's because this experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and meditating on the Word of God are related. They go together together. Listen to me, this is very important. The Spirit of God does not produce hope apart from the Word of God. And the Word of God does not produce hope separate and apart from the Spirit of God. (laughs) You can read the Word all day, and if the Spirit doesn't come and work in your heart, it doesn't do anything. But the Spirit loves to use the word it's the holy spirit through the word the word used by the holy spirit that takes away fear that gives us hope that fills us with joy that makes us overflow with love so the way to experience the outpouring of the holy spirit is first to ask And then pour the word into your heart and mind to meditate on God's word day and night. I don't fully understand how it works. All I know is to tell you that the Holy Spirit loves to use the word that he inspired. And the word has this way. Of showing us our need for the Holy Spirit. It has this way of making us aware of how dry we are. So that we feel our need for the Spirit. And we cry out to the Lord asking Him to pour out His Spirit. So ask for the Spirit. Then meditate on the Word of God. So that we might not fear. So that we might flourish. So that we might be more and more devoted to God. So that he would use us to draw others to himself. Let's pray together and ask God to do that. Oh, Father, I thank you for your word. And right now, I don't want to let another moment go by without asking for your spirit. Oh, Father, you who know how to give good gifts, would you pour out your spirit on your church? Would you pour out your spirit on our community? Would you pour out your spirit on our nation, on our world? We are dry and thirsty. I pray that you would pour out your spirit. And those of us who are here at Redeemer, I pray that we would drench ourselves in the word. And that you would use those things in a way that we don't fully understand. To accomplish your purposes in and through us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.